Well, our sermon text today is Psalm 57. Psalm 57. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to that passage, that follow along as we read, and I ask you to please stand for the reading of God's Word today. Give ear to the reading of God's Holy Word. To the choir master, according to Do Not Destroy, a mictam of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God Most High, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts. The children of men whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They set a net for my, for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake at the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of our God. So let's pray once again and ask him to bless his word to us and give us understanding into it. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Thank you that all scripture is given by inspiration. It's breathed out by you. And all of it is profitable for us that we might be built up in our faith and be equipped for every good work. So we ask this morning that you would do uh, what we cannot do. We cannot understand your word rightly on our own without you teaching us. We don't hunger for it uh, as we do our bread uh, as we should. So we ask that you'd work in us by your spirit. Give us once again eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. For it's in Christ's name and for his glory that we pray. Amen. Well, the the title or the superscription above this psalm uh, tells us that it's a psalm of David. David's the author. It says that uh, he wrote it, quote, when he, when he fled from Saul in the cave. So Saul, uh, David was a caveman for a time. He fled from Saul in the cave. He either wrote the psalm during that time when it was happening, or he wrote the psalm afterward reflecting back, back upon it. That's the, uh, the historical context behind this great psalm of, of King David. And there are at least two different incidents, if you know the book of 1 Samuel. There's two different accounts in 1 Samuel that deal with David hiding in a cave. The first of those is recorded in, in 1 Samuel 22, verses 1 through 5. And that's when David hid himself in the cave of Adullam. The second one is only a couple chapters later, so he spent a good period of his time at one time or another in, in, a, in a cave or one or another caves. And that's in 1 Samuel 24, two chapters later, verses 1 through 22. And that's when David and his men were hiding in a cave in a place called En Gedi. You might remember that that's the time when Saul actually went into the very same cave where David was hiding. You know, it was evidently a, you know, a long, you know, winding uh, cave inside this 
this rock or the side of a mountain somewhere. And so David and his men were hiding in the far back of the cave. And uh, the scripture says that Saul went into that cave, basically used it as the bathroom. It says in verse 3 there that he went there to relieve himself. So he wasn't looking for David. He didn't think anybody else was there with him. He didn't know David and his men were there. Well, if you know the story, David's men encouraged David to kill him. You know, they kind of uh, misread. They thought they were reading God's providence accurately and saying, hey, look, you know, God must have put him here. You can kind of read what they were thinking. God must have put Saul here to give you this chance to finally get rid of him. We've been running from this guy for how long? And it must be God's will for you to kill him. But what did David do? Remember, David refused to put his hand forth against the Lord's anointed. He wouldn't touch. He wouldn't try to harm Saul. And so what did he do? He cut, he snuck up on him stealthily and cut off a portion of Saul's robe, which even that he felt bad about if you read the account. But he, he cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And what he did afterward, when Saul left the cave, David came out and said, I'm paraphrasing, you know, look, I could have killed you, basically. And look what I did. Here's the proof. Look at your robe. Part of it's missing. If I was going to do you harm, I would have done you harm when I had you in my sights. He had him dead to rights, but he didn't harm him. And Saul kind of, I believe he feigned, you know, he kind of faked being, you know, gracious to, to David uh, about that. But, but David refused to, to harm him. And now commentators are kind of divided over which one of these incidents is talked about here in Psalm 57. We don't really know for sure which one it was. Some say the first, some say the, the latter at En Gedi. In some ways it doesn't really matter, because in both cases, really, David was still on, his run, on, his, on the run for his life from Saul, and he found his hiding place in a cave. And in both cases, where did David really find his refuge? Not the cave, although he was hiding there. His refuge was God alone. His true refuge was in, was in God. So either way, this psalm fits both of those circumstances back in 1 Samuel. Now, when, when David found himself hiding in that cave, you have to imagine that he was sorely tempted to think that somehow God's purposes for him and his promises to him didn't look like they were going to be fulfilled. It, it looked like they were in danger of being, of, of failing. But can God's word fail? Did David know God's word can't fail? Yes, and so he strengthened himself in the promises of God. And so what did David do? When it, when it looked like things weren't going to go the way God had promised, the way God had, had told him of his purposes for him, David does what God's redeemed have always done in times of trial. He prayed. But he did something else, too. He praised. Those things aren't unrelated. He prayed, and he praised God. Now, how often do you and I fail to do the former, at least for a time? You know, we, we go through a trial, we have some problem in front of us, some dire circumstance, uh, and sometimes the last thing we think to do is to stop and to pray. Well, how much more frequently do you and I fail to do the latter, especially in time of trial? We might finally pray. How often do we think to stop, even in the midst of our trials, and praise God? God is still to be praised even during time of affliction and trial. And it's not by accident. Surely it must be for a reason, maybe for that reason, that so many of the psalms, you know, there's different kinds of psalms, and perhaps the biggest, the, the, the category of psalms that has the most number of psalms in it is one that we call laments. Like the book Lamentations. It's a, it's a time of sorrow, a time of trial. 
there are many, many psalms that are laments, and we have to think that those psalms teach us, among other things, to praise God in time of trial. Even to sing God's praise in time of trial and affliction. This morning we're going to look at this psalm and we're going to use, I'm going to borrow, uh, borrow beggar steel, Charles Spurgeon's outline for this psalm. And he divided it up into two parts, almost equal parts. The first half, so to speak, verses one through six is David's prayer. And the second part in verses seven through eleven is David's praise. So David's prayer followed by David's praise. Now, we don't want to press that too hard, right? If, when you pray, you know, a lot of times when you're praying, you praise God. We do it this, every Sunday morning. We, we have a prayer of what? Adoration. That's praise and confession. And by the same token, a lot of times when you're praising God, you're praying. If you're praising God rightly, a lot of the songs that we sing, a lot of the Psalms are addressed like this one to God Himself. And so praise and prayer, there's a lot of overlap between those two things. We don't want to press that division too far, but we're going to look at it. I think it's helpful to look at the psalm broken up into those two basic parts. So I guess this is a two-point sermon, not a three-point sermon. But uh, David's prayer is the first thing we find there in verses 1 through 6, and he begins the psalm with a prayer. It's a cry for mercy, right? Verse 1, David says, Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. That gives you a kind of an insight into what David thought about his situation. It, it, it's, you know, I don't know what storms come to your mind. No, if you live in Southern California, we don't think of hurricanes and tornadoes. We think of forest fire, you know, wildfires and maybe, maybe an earthquake, although I've never really worried about those. But he thought of his trial with Saul as a storm of destruction, as a desolation. Now think of it kind of like when you see a large storm, uh, that when you're watching the news and the destruction that, that it leaves in its wake, that's what David's thinking of. It feels like a storm of destruction coming over him, and he's taking refuge in the one place, in the one person that he could. That's God himself. Now those opening words in verse 1 where he says, Be merciful to me, O God, in the Hebrew text, are they're exactly the same, same exact words, as the opening of Psalm 51. You might know Psalm 51 is one of those two great psalms of confession where David looked for forgiveness for, from, from his God for his sin of adultery with Bathsheba and his murder of her husband, uh, Uriah. Uh, that, he began that psalm, a psalm of asking God's forgiveness for his sin by the same words, be merciful to me, O God. And now we see that he's uh, seeking deliverance from God uh, with the same words when it came to his trials with Saul. So we see the deliverance and salvation from sin is a matter of God's mercy. Be merciful to me, O God, as is deliverance and salvation from our enemies and afflictions as well. They're both on the basis of God's mercy. In both cases, David cries out to his God for mercy or grace. So at, at all times and always, as Christians, our prayers to God for help must always really be, when you boil them down, cries for God's mercy. Now, while David was hiding in that cave, uh, he didn't see ultimately that cave or any earthly defense as his real refuge, but he took his refuge. What does he say? God. He's hiding in a cave, and from an earthly perspective, you could say that was his refuge, but that's not what David thought at all. David may have been hiding in a cave, but he was seeking his refuge in God alone. It wasn't the darkness or shadows of that cave 
That was David's refuge, but the shadow of God's wings, he says. Remember our call to worship, Psalm 91, had the same imagery about taking shelter under the wings of the Most, of the most High. Now that's anthropomorphic language. Uh, why? Because the scripture says, John 4.24, God is a spirit. He doesn't have a body, right? We, we, have, we are body and soul. We are creatures. We have bodies. But God, as our confession says, uh, is not comprised of body parts or passions. He is not a created being. He is not a physical being as we are. But nevertheless, God's loving care and his providential protection of his people in time of trial is depicted well by the analogy of a mother hen. God's not embarrassed in his own word to describe himself as a mother hen, protecting his his chicks under his wings. And that's what God does for us, his people in Christ. Now, despite David's... Th- I mean, th- it's easy to read Psalms, and a lot of scriptures, it's easy to read and not really feel the weight of what's going on. You think about what David must have felt here at this time. David, in some ways was facing very, you know, terrifying, literally terrifying circumstances. He he faced life or death. Saul wasn't even going to just throw him in jail. Saul wanted to kill him. And Saul was pulling out all the stops to do that. And despite all that, what did David do? He took refuge in God. He trusted that he was well able and willing to fulfill his purposes for him, verse 2. And even that God was willing to send from heaven, verse 3. And what is it that God was going to send from heaven, to deliver David. It says in verse, verse 3 that God will send out his steadfast love and faithfulness. If you have a King James, it's, instead of faithfulness, it's the word truth. They're, they're very related uh, words. So God sends forth his steadfast love and his truth. And in verses 4 through 6, if you read there, what does David start to do there? He starts to describe his enemies. He starts to describe the people who were who were chasing him. He says that, you know, the, the, he he pictures them like animals. You know, recently our our president described a certain group of people as animals, and people got all upset. Well, David does that about his, about his enemies here. He says that of his enemies that they that he was in the midst of lions. His enemies made it as if his soul was in the midst of lions, and of him lying down among fiery beasts. He says that their teeth are spears and arrows. He's kind of mixing his metaphors now. And their tongues are sharp swords. I think it's interesting that, that you know, David's in physical danger. David's life is in danger. The only thing keeping him from death is God protecting him. And yet, he's also mindful of the evil of the tongue, isn't he here? As dangerous as his circumstances were, he had in mind the evil, the real evil and damage that the tongue, the human tongue, is capable of doing through evil speech. James, in, in the book of James, chapter 3, verses 5 through 6, you might remember this. James says, So also the tongue is a small member, it's a small part of your body, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The, the tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Sins of the tongue are much more dangerous and wicked than we tend to think on any given day. Now maybe that's why David speaks of, in verse 3, God sending out his truth or his faithfulness. His enemies used lies and slander. He doesn't just want deliverance from danger. 
he also prays to God for deliverance from slander and evil speaking as well. If you've ever been the victim of that kind of evil speaking, you know what David's talking about. It's no small thing to have your reputation slandered and drugged through the mud. Well, notice that in the very midst of David describing the wickedness, the evil, the hatred of his enemies, in verse 5 he does something that kind of seems, it seems out of place, doesn't it? He starts to praise God. His mind goes to his enemies, and right smack in the middle of it, he starts to praise God. He says, Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. William Plummer writes, he says, This verse looks like an abrupt and illogical change of subject, but pious minds in the midst of their greatest sufferings turn with alacrity from themselves to God. You hear that? He says, uh, this verse looks like an abrupt and illogical, illogical change of subject, but pious minds, in the midst of their greatest sufferings, they turn their, their minds to God. Notice how many times in this short 11-verse psalm, God, or Paul, excuse me, David mentions God. It's almost every verse. It's over and over and over again. Even when he talks about his enemies, all of a sudden, where does his mind go? God. His enemies looked huge to him. His enemies were, remember, his enemies to him were a storm of destruction. And yet, when he thought of them, he quickly turned his mind back to his God. Now, isn't that the way that you and I as believers in Christ, the redeemed of the Lord Jesus Christ, ought to view all of our dangers, toils, and snares? We don't ignore them. We don't put, you don't put your head in the sand. You don't pretend you don't have problems. You don't pretend that you don't have trials and afflictions. What do you do? They might terrify you. They might fill you with dread and anxiety and fear in relation to us because they are often bigger than us. Your trials, my trials are very often too much for us. They are bigger than us. They are not something that we are able to handle in our own power and might. They're very often uh, more, they're, they're too much for us to handle on our own. But if we view them not in relation to us, but in relation to God, we start to see them rightly. You know, it's easy to be overwhelmed when you look at your, your problems, your trials, your afflictions, your temptations. They are bigger than you. And they are frightening. And they are something that's fearful and makes you anxious. But when you look at them in relation to God, what then? They seem to be nothing in God's sight. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. Nothing shall be impossible with God, And so you and I, we do well to strengthen ourselves in our most holy faith, even in time of trial, not only when we pray, but when we begin the practice of praising God in time of trial. We view our enemies, our circumstances, our afflictions rightly when we view them in light of the greatness, power, and steadfast love of our God in Jesus Christ. That's the right way to, to view them. Now, notice that while David starts this, this psalm with a cry for God's mercy in verse 1, no less than twice in the middle and at the end of the psalm, what does he do? He goes from crying out to God for mercy, which he doesn't, he doesn't take that back, he cries to God for mercy, but he makes the exaltation and glory of God the chief subject and aim of his prayer. He cries to mercy, but twice he cries that God might be glorified. That's the main part of his Prayer. Do you, do you pray that way? Do we commonly pray that way? Do we pray that way even when you're facing some great trial in your life? 
Do you pray for God to be glorified in your life, even in the midst of those very circumstances and trials that you find yourself faced with at any given time? That's what David does here. It's pretty remarkable. David's life is being threatened. I don't know when the last time it was any of you had your life literally, physically threatened. David, it seemed to be a common occurrence, but David really was on the run for his life, and yet what does he do? May God be glorified. He prays for God's glory twice. And isn't that the very thing that Jesus Christ our Lord teaches us in that great pattern prayer that we prayed this morning, the Lord's Prayer? Now that, that prayer includes some common things, some extraordinary things. We pray for our daily bread. Most of us probably don't think much about our daily bread. We presume it. Right? We, we, just, we just take it for granted. We, we take for granted that we have more than actual just bread. We have all kinds of food in the fridge, and those are good things. They're gifts, gifts of God. We pray for thing, mundane things like our daily bread. We pray for more important things like forgiveness of our sins, of our debts or transgressions. And yet, where does the prayer begin? What's the first, kids, what's the first request in the Lord's Prayer? Do you know? We just prayed it this morning. It probably doesn't sound like a request at all, the way that we say it. Our Father who art in heaven, it's King James, right? You have to pray in King James English. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. When I was a a, a child, uh, we prayed that, I want to say almost every Sunday, I thought that was part of the address, so to speak. I thought it was a statement of fact. Our Father in heaven, uh, you know, your name is hallowed. Well, it's not. I mean, his name is hallowed, but that's a request. It, it, to understand that rightly is to see it as a request. It's what it is. You're really asking that God, the first request in the Lord's Prayer. And so the chief request, the one that controls the rest of it, even our daily bread, is that God's name might be hallowed or revered or set apart as holy. That we would praise God's name and lift it up in everything that we do and that we say. That's the first request in the Lord's Prayer, is that God's name might be hallowed. And remember, the Lord's Prayer, we do pray it verbatim, and Jesus tells us to do that, to pray pray this. But it's also pray this way. It's a pattern prayer. It's supposed to teach us how to pray. It's supposed to inform how we pray. Now, how might our prayer lives and our lives in general change and be transformed if we prayed that way? If in our prayers we made God's glory, the the glory of God's name, our main concern, and everything else fell in line under, under that, how might that transform our prayer lives if we were to do that and follow that great pattern prayer that Jesus taught us through his disciples? Now, what's the second thing we see in our psalm is David's praise. David's praise in verses 7 through 11. David here doesn't just pray, as good as that is. He commits himself to praise his God and even to sing. Christians are singing people. We don't, I don't know if you ever wondered, why do we sing in church? Why do we do that? Some people might think that's quite odd, but we are singing people. God's people have always been a singing people. And David... David, the man after God's own heart, he he commits himself to praising God. He goes from thinking about his enemies, his fearful circumstances, the danger he was in, to thinking about his God. And when he thought about his God, he couldn't help but think about praising God and committing to praise him. In verses 7 through 10, David says this, My heart is steadfast, O God, my heart is steadfast. I will sing 
and make melody. Awake my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. Why? For your steadfast love is great to the heavens and your faithfulness to the clouds. Now think about that. David, remember the song they used to sing about David, that Saul had killed his thousands and David his tens, ten thousands? Now David was a man of war. David was not a cowardly uh, man. And yet David was not ashamed at all to sing and even to write songs to help us to sing praise to God. And notice, too, that David, the man after God's own heart, right? The Bible twice says that David was the man after God's own heart. Even David needed sometimes to rouse himself to praise God. David didn't always feel like, so to speak, praising God. And so he, he, he told himself, awake, awake my glory, I will awake the dawn. Uh, have you ever had to rouse yourself to wake yourself up? Wake up your heart and your mind so that you might praise God and sing his praises properly. I'm, I'm sure m- most of you have. I know that I have. Who among us can say, honestly, that we've never gone through the motions in worship? We, we get, you get into the routine and you just kind of, we stand up, we sit down, we do this, and, and your brain checks out and you think about lunch, not that we ever do that. Uh, but you kind of go through the motions. Who among us is not offered to God half-hearted prayer and praise, even in church, even in Sunday morning worship? Well, the answer is not to refrain from praying or to refrain from praising God. The answer, the solution, is to rouse yourself up to praise God as David even does here. David sets us a good example, a helpful, encouraging example, that that we're not alone in that. And sometimes David had to, to kind of get himself, get his mind and heart back on God to sing God's praise. Now, brothers and sisters, you don't have to be, you don't have to be very good at praying to pray. Anybody here think they're good at praying? I don't think I'm good at praying. Probably none of you think I'm good, no, that you're good at praying, right? Uh, but God is good at answering. God is good at answering even the weak, imperfect, faulty prayers of His weak, imperfect, faulty people. And so we pray. In fact, the scriptures in Romans 8.26 tell us that, you know, we need help to pray. Why? We don't know what to pray for, Paul says, as we are. We don't even know what to pray for. Maybe that's why Jesus gave us that pattern prayer to tell us what to pray for, those things that are listed in that prayer. And he says that the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. What's he saying? He's saying the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity himself, who is dwelling within you if you're a believer in Christ, prays for you in your prayers. He helps us pray, and he even intercedes for us as we pray. We have much more help in praying than we realize. Not only that, but Christ himself intercedes for us at the right hand of God, the scripture says. And you also don't have to be very good at singing. I'm thankful for that every time I have this microphone on on a Sunday morning. You don't have to be very good at singing in order to sing God's praises. You may not like your voice. I don't like my voice. But God is fine with your voice. God made your voice. Like he told Moses, who made your mouth? God God knew what your voice was going to sound like. He made it the way that it is. God is pleased by his grace in Christ, not just to accept our persons as righteous in his sight, only for Christ's righteousness imputed to us. But he's also pleased by that same basis to accept our imperfect good works, our imperfect prayers, and even our weak and imperfect worship and praise 
as pleasing in his sight. Why? As the confession of faith says, he looks upon them in his son. On your own, are your good works worthy of God's acceptance? Are they pleasing in God's sight on their own? No. Our best good works are stained with sin. My, our best prayers are loaded with sin. We pray selfishly. We pray all kinds of things not quite right. And yet God, in his grace, accepts them just as he accepts you if you're a Christian in Christ. He accepts your good works, as imperfect as they are, because he accepts them and looks upon them in his Son. He accepts your prayers and answers them in his Son. We even pray in the name of Christ when we pray. That's one of the reasons for that. And he even accepts our worship. Is our worship on Sundays perfect? That's a dumb question. That's a far, it's rhetorical, it isn't even the right category for that question, right? Um, is anybody's worship perfect? No. And yet is God pleased to accept our worship in Christ? Yes. We worship him in spirit and in truth. We have to try to worship him according to his word, to the best of our ability, but God accepts even our imperfect worship because God is good. So, brothers and sisters, make, make it your aim and your goal to praise God and even to sing his praises. I should have done this sermon at the beginning of the service and then sang all the songs after it. Uh, why? Make it your, your, your aim to praise God and sing his praises to the best of your ability because of his steadfast love towards you in Christ. In Colossians 3.16, Paul says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in wisdom. And then he says this, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. One of the ways that you and I, as God's people in the church, are to let the word of Christ dwell among us, in us, abundantly or richly, is not just me standing up here preaching, it's admonishing one another, right? Talking about the word of God to one another. But what's the other way, he says? Singing. 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 You let the word of Christ dwell in us richly by singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts to God. You minister the word of God to each other as you sing. You minister it to yourself as you sing, in addition to praising God and being pleasing in his sight and doing that. Notice, notice that David's praise in the psalm here wasn't going to be confined uh, to, a, to a cave it wasn't going to be confined even to a palace in Jerusalem one day when he was finally not on the run from Saul anymore. He says in verse 9 that, that would, his praise would be among the peoples and even among the nations. He's not even limiting the praise of God to Israel. He's saying all the nations. He's going to praise, David was going to praise his God among all the nations. Think about that. There is an evangelistic, if I can use that word, an evangelistic element to praise. Glorifying God, there's, a, there's an evangelistic element to that. Doesn't that change how you think of evangelism? Does that change how you think of praise? We try to glorify God. That's the, that's the goal of evangelism. Just like it's the goal of praise and singing in, to God's glory in worship, either on the Lord's Day together or by yourself as you're doing whatever you do during the day. That's, that's the goal, is to praise and glorify God. Why do we sing God's praises even in the midst of trials and afflictions? What's the, what's the motive for it? What is it 
What is it about God that makes us want to praise him or should make us want to praise him, even in time of trial and affliction? David says it in verse 10. God's steadfast love, his steadfast love is great to the heavens. You know, think about, you know, David wasn't, uh, you know, an astronomer, but David said God's steadfast love to him is as high as he can imagine. It's greater than the heavens, the stars. It's unmeasurable is what he is saying. And then he says his faithfulness or truth is great even to the clouds. That, that's, that's what he's saying. It's what Paul says in, Eph- in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 18 to 19, where he prayed for the believers at Ephesus, and this is what he says of them. He prays that they, quote, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. When Paul prayed for the, the church at Ephesus, when we pray for each other and for other believers, we should think about the same thing. He wanted them to, to know. They needed help to know God had to enable them and strengthen them. They might know the greatness of God's love for us in Christ. It's something that we need to know better. And the more we know it, the more we'll be inclined to praise God for it. Thinking and meditating upon the love of God in Jesus Christ, as it's taught to us in the Bible will lead us, if we're thinking about it rightly, it will lead us to praise. That's what it should lead us to. It should lead us to trust in God alone as our refuge from the storms and trials of life, even death itself. For none of these things, not even death itself, can ever separate us from what? What does Paul say in Romans 8? Nothing in all creation shall separate you from what? From the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. The steadfast love of, of God, the grace and love of God in Jesus Christ. No wonder David closes this great psalm, Psalm 57, by repeating that refrain back from verse 5. He repeats it again at the very end of the psalm, saying, Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. What, what? Think about the wording there. He's saying, Your steadfast love is great to the heavens. So be exalted, O God, above the heavens. And let your glory be over all the earth. That's... That's the kind of praise that comes from somebody who understood more and more the greatness of the steadfast love of God in Jesus Christ. Let's let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your steadfast love to us in Jesus Christ. We thank you that uh, when that you show your great love towards us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, and we give you praise. We know that we don't we don't comprehend that as we ought. We hear it so many times. Sometimes we begin to take it for granted. It begins to lose the impact it should have upon us. But we ask, as Paul even prayed there in Ephesians, that you would give us the strength by your Spirit to more and more really and truly comprehend the greatness of your love, the height, the depth, the length, the breadth of your love that surpasses knowledge. And that love for us is found in Christ. And we shouldn't be surprised to think of it as something that's hard for us to comprehend when we think of the sinless Son of God taking on flesh and and living and dying on the cross in our place, the place of wicked sinners like us. So we ask that you would work in our hearts, change our hearts, help us to be quick to pray to you in time of trial. Make us quick to give you praise, to sing your praises. We thank you for giving us psalms that teach us and enable us and help us to sing your praise even in time of great trial and adversity. And we do praise you and thank you that nothing in all creation can separate us from your love in Jesus Christ our Lord. For it's in his name we pray.
Amen.